Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. I am so thrilled to be back doing the show. We had a two-month hiatus, took the holidays off, took January off. Now it's February and we are back for a new season and we're back with a very exciting series. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you may remember that last year at this time, we did a series on Pearl Jam where we went through every album in that band's discography and we discussed it in depth. And that series went really well and people really liked it. So I I wanted to do it again this year with another artist who is an American rock institution, an artist with a discography with many iconic albums, albums that continue to have audiences to this day, continue to influence people, and would be fun to discuss on this podcast. So the person that came to mind fairly quickly for me was Bruce Springsteen. We are launching an eight-part series today looking at Bruce Springsteen's career in the 20th century. We're looking at his albums going from his first record, which came out in 1973, that's called Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. And we're going up through his last album of the 20th century, which was 1995's The Ghost of Tom Joad. And we're calling it 20th Century Boss, by the way, is the name of the series. And, you know, initially I thought we're going to do the entire catalog of Bruce Springsteen. That was sort of my initial brainstorm for this series. But then um, I realized a couple things. Number one, uh, the series would go on forever (laughs) if I did that. The, The series would be probably like, you know, 13, 14 episodes. And as much as I love Bruce Springsteen, it just would have been way too long. Uh, The other reason that I decided to focus on the 20th century with Bruce is that it's kind of hard to find people uh, that have opinions on uh, high hopes or uh, working on a dream. People just don't have opinions on that. Even though I love a lot of Bruce's albums in the 21st century, I'm a big fan of Magic. I think The Rising is a really great record. I like Devils and Dust. Um, It just seemed good to focus on the 20th century because the journey that Bruce took during this time over the course of just over 20 years... Uh, from being this unknown singer-songwriter from New Jersey, which really before Bruce did not have any kind of romantic connotations to it whatsoever. (laughs) Any romantic ideas that you have of New Jersey, if you are a listener of this podcast, they were probably implanted by Bruce Springsteen. So Bruce Springsteen, he enters a world where that doesn't exist in the early 70s. And he goes from that to the 90s uh, where... At that point, he was already an American icon, but he was still a relatively young man, and he had to figure out how to deal with the tremendous success that he had in the mid-1980s with Born in the USA. I mean, that was really almost a decade of him, after that album came out, trying to figure out how he was going to survive as an artist. And the story of Springsteen, you know, building up to that success, and then sort of leveling off from that 
and having a career where he wasn't going to let the huge hits uh, that he became associated with define his career and to have a career that had legs and, and would continue on after that. Uh, to me, that's a fascinating story. And uh, over the course of, the, of these eight episodes, as we delve into his discography, to me, that is, I guess, the overarching narrative of, of this podcast series. How did this, this guy, you know, this uh, icon of American music, uh, how did he get to be the national uh, monument that he became with Born in the USA? How did he get to that point? And then how did he survive it? It's going to be a fascinating journey along the way. We have a lot of great guests. Uh, I'm talking all to musicians in this series, all musicians, all singer-songwriters, uh, people who have been influenced by Bruce Springsteen. And it, it's been fascinating because, you know, Springsteen is one of those people, he obviously is part of the classic rock generation, but he influences people well beyond that. And you'll see in this series that my guests range in age from early 20s to early 50s. You know, we have Gen Xers and we have millennials. And I guess even, I guess Generation Z on the young end is what you would call those people. But I think even more than like a Bob Dylan or Neil Young, you know, these other iconic singer-songwriter figures of classic rock history, Bruce Springsteen continues to have this sort of contemporary relevance for, for young musicians and, and for young audiences. And he's a person that people continue to discover. And I think that with this series, if you love Springsteen, I think you'll get something out of this. But if you've never heard him before, this might be an entry point uh, into his discography. So let's begin our journey into the land of Bruce. With this episode, our first episode, looking at the first two Springsteen albums, uh, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and The Wild and the Innocent in the East Street Shuffle. Now, I know there's gonna be people who feel that these should have separate episodes, you know, because they love these records, and they feel maybe that I'm sliding them in some way by grouping them together into one episode, but I think it makes sense, because to me, these albums are very much of a piece. You know, they, they both came out the same year, 1973. Greetings came out on January 5th, and The Wild and the Innocent came out just over, I guess, eight months later or so on September 11th, 1973. Uh, both albums were recorded in the same place, uh, a very cheap studio called 914 in upstate New York. Uh, they were both done with the same producer, Mike Appel, who was Springsteen's original manager. Uh, this was before John Landau came into the picture uh, with Born to Run and dramatically changed the course of Bruce's career. Uh, the personnel on these records is pretty much the same. You have Clarence Clements and Gary Talent, uh, two you know, foundational members of the East Street Band that we all know and love. And of course, da Danny Federici comes into the picture on The Wild and the Innocent. But then you also have guys like David Sanchez and Vinny Mad Dog Lopez, early members of Bruce's band, who played a pivotal role in the sound of these early records. And after those guys left, the sound of the East Street Band changed pretty significantly. So they kind of helped bond these records together. And Bruce's songwriting at this time, I think, is distinctly different from what he was going to do on subsequent records. His writing is very wordy. It's very specific to New Jersey. There's lots of Dylan-esque imagery. Madman drummers, bummers, Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat, stuff like that that has no specific meaning but puts all these crazy images in your head. That's the kind of writing he was doing at this, at this time. After these records, he would deliberately pare his lyrics down, make them more concrete, uh, make them more direct. And 
you could say that that was an improvement. I, I, I do think that was an improvement for the most part, but there's something about these early records that's really appealing, the, the looseness of them, the wildness of them, and, and just Bruce's youth at this time. You know, he was a guy who was in his early 20s, and you can hear him trying to be great and not quite getting there yet. I, I think that on the second side of The Wild and the Innocent, He's getting there. You can see the guy that's going to make Born to Run on that side of the record, but he has to make an album and a half uh, before he gets there. So to me, these records are the prequels to the great run that Bruce would go on from the mid-70s up through the late 80s, which is one of the great runs in rock history, where every album was a significant statement marking an evolution in the sophistication of Bruce's songwriting, um, as well as the, the, the sort of elaboration of the themes that he would establish. Uh, I think most firmly with Born to Run and then from then on forward. Uh, these two records feel a little separate from what he was gonna do on that record. So to me, that's why I wanted to put them together. And uh, when the time came for me to discuss this record, there was a pretty obvious guy to call, and that is my guest in this episode, Brian Fallon. Uh, Brian is a, is a native of Red Bank, New Jersey, which means he grew up amid the same back streets as Bruce Springsteen uh, grew up in. Um, in 2006, he formed a band called the Gaslight Anthem, which went on to become one of the 21st century's most beloved and successful punk bands. In 2008, that band released its breakthrough album, The 59 Sound, which in my estimation is an absolute classic. And that album garnered rave reviews from critics, and most important, from Bruce himself, who became a mentor of sorts to Fallon after that, and occasionally performed with him on stage. Um, in 2016, Brian released his first solo record, Painkillers, and on February 9th, a few days after this episode is posting, he released a very good follow-up LP called Sleepwalkers, so definitely check that record out. Brian was one of the first people I thought of, again, when I was going to do this Springsteen series, and thankfully he agreed to participate. When I asked him what record he wanted to talk about, he said, Greetings from Asbury Park was his favorite record, which surprised me a little bit, but he gets into it in this episode why he loves this record so much. So we talked about that record, and we talked about uh, the transition that he made into making The Wild and the Innocent. Uh, we had a great conversation, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So here's me and Brian Fallon talking about the first two Springsteen records. So I know you are uh, a native of New Jersey. You're from Red Bank, I believe. Yeah. And yep. I've only spent like a very little amount of time in the actual New Jersey, but I've spent countless hours in Bruce Springsteen's New Jersey. So the New Jersey that I know is from his songs. And yeah. I, I'm bringing this up in the context of his first two records because obviously the first record is called Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. There's the postcard on the cover. And it, it was a very deliberate thing on his part because his record company was promoting him as a guy from New York City. And he was saying, no, I'm from New Jersey. And, he, and from the beginning, on these, and especially I think on these first two records, New Jersey is such a big part um, of, of those albums. And it's really um, created this picture for people like me who live in the middle of the country of, of what this place is. So I guess I'm wondering for you, you know, as someone who grew up there, one, I'm wondering what significance did that have that Springsteen made New Jersey such a big part of his songs? And what, how big is the gap between the actual New Jersey and the, and the New Jersey that we hear in Bruce Springsteen songs? Uh, well, the first part is like, for us, it was cool because 
you know, we had something that was our own because yeah, there's a lot of people. If you look up, uh, my wife and I have this game about like who's from New Jersey. You know, it's like because she's from England, so everyone is uh, is from New Jersey, and it blows her mind. Like Bruce Willis and you know Jack Nicholson and all these people, but they sort of leave, and none of them, none of them really are like you know what New Jersey. And Bruce Springsteen was kind of the first one to be like, uh, I'm I'm from New Jersey, and that was really odd in the '70s. You know, no one was. No one was from anywhere in the 70s. They were just from kind of, you couldn't tell, you know, and he, he, he sort of put that stamp out there and said, nah, you know what? I'm just kind of from New Jersey. and This is my vibe and I'm going I'm to put it out there and see what happens. And, and that was cool for us because it gave us like a, uh, it's corny, but a state hero. I don't think it's corny, but it sounds corny. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was cool because we had somebody we could look up to and that we could respect more importantly. Right. You know, we, we could, we could say, well, that guy, that guy writes great. You know, what are you going to say about that? You can't say nothing. And then as the career went on, it was just even more. Well, spe- well, especially since like, I feel like, especially among New Yorkers, I feel like when you watch talk shows or you listen to like old timey comedians, like they would always make jokes about New Jersey. There was always this idea yeah. that like, you know, we live in the city and New Jersey is this backwater and you know, there's yeah. nothing there. And then you have Springsteen who is writing about regular people from New Jersey, but also doing it in this sort of heightened, romantic, very romantic way, especially in those first two records, uh, where it, it just seems like this dreamland of like people fighting in the streets, like West Side Story type of stuff. Yeah. But, uh, but it, it, he manages to take this place that maybe people made fun of and, and made it seem like, well, this is like a magical wonderland <laughs> you know, to go to. Yeah. Well, if you have a good imagination, you know, and some time on your hands, you can invent anything. But I think that it was all invented in truth. You know, like the New Jersey of uh, of greetings from Asbury Park and the Wild Anderson and Eastern Shuffle, it, it's it's very true because especially like this Monmouth County, like Red Bank and Asbury and Freehold are not really far apart. Like I, I right now I live in the middle of all three of those places, and I can be in either one of those places in 15 minutes. It's not they're not far. So, but you see these things like, you, you know, there's this, uh, there's the whole, well, he addressed that kind of, and does this bus stop at 82nd street, you know? And, and he sort of had that, that New York, uh, vibe going on because he would always travel to the city for, for shows. And so he would take the bus and, or the train and ride up there and, you know, kind of catch a glimpse of that and then bring it back home. And a lot of these things are just, you know, mixed up, images of you know when you're you're looking for that like romanticism outside of the walls just over the you know the the parkway there's got to be something else because that's what everybody's doing here it's like kind of like you you know it's small and there's not much there's not much of a like a city life i mean i it's they're cities but they're not the same as manhattan and then you're always kind of looking over being like i think i can get free if i drop go that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And there's this element of like, you're on the edge of the country, you know, and there's, there's Europe and England, uh, you know, to, to one side. And then the other side, there's California and you know, the rest is just the wide open. So it's, it's a weird thing. And like having New York just over the, the bridge, you're kind of looking on and you can see the lights too from at night. It's really weird. Cause I've been since I was a kid, you can always kind of think like, what's going on over there? And I think that that really contributes to the imagination, especially when you're young. Right. And I mean, I, 
what you're talking about there, I think, is a really interesting point because I think when you listen to those Springsteen songs, those early ones, there is a sense of like the characters in these songs living in a small town, you know, because everyone knows each other and everyone has nicknames, you know, and you can kind of lay out the terrain. But at the same time, yeah. it's, it's, it's an urban, it feels urban. You know, it doesn't feel like the country yeah. necessarily, but they're not big cities. And it, it, when you were talking about New Jersey there, I mean, it sounds like that kind of comes across on those records, that, that feeling. It, it does, because, uh, you know, like Crazy Janie and a Mission Man, you know, like, what, what's that about? You know, like, why does, you know, why is Wild Billy a crazy cat and shaking dust out of his coonskin cap? Like, that's weird. You know, why is that? But, like, that's what happens when you, you, know, you have to invent these, these sort of situations and these things, because... You know, your immediate doesn't seem so appealing, you know, because I tell you it's immediate. You know, if you're looking in Freehold or you're looking in, in, in you know, Red Bank's different now. It's it's a lot lot different. It's a little bit more upscale, very expensive, actually, um, than when it was when I was a kid. And definitely when Bruce was a kid, it was different. Um, but, you know, you look over the horizon and there's there's a lot of these factories going and, you know, that when you first pull into New Jersey, that, that right by the airport, Newark, that's what it is. And, you know, they're, they're waiting for you. You know, you can, you can go, go get a job there, and that's kind of where you, you live and die. And, and it's, it's a little scary to think, uh, you know, for, for those who, you know, get lost in their imagination, it, it's hard because you, you think, well, that, that can't be it. it. It really can't. It can't. That, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to accept that that it, within those walls and the smoke towers, that that's all I'm going to have for my whole life. Right. You know, I'm curious because you know you and I are around the same age. I think you're 37 and I'm I'm 40. Yeah. So we we grew up roughly at the same time. So you, I mean, you would have been you know a teenager like I was in the 90s, and I'm sure you were probably listening to. Like I know you're a Pearl Jam fan, so you probably listened to like alternative rock at that time, and and then you obviously yeah. got into punk rock at some point. You know, being a kid in the 90s from New Jersey, was there ever a moment, like when you were younger maybe, like where you were like, I don't want to listen to Springsteen because he's being pushed on me all the time? Like, was that something you had to get over because it was so ubiquitous, or did you embrace that pretty early on? Um, I didn't have a, a, a objection to it at all because um, I, so when I sort of discovered, my mom showed me him really early, uh, and so I was young when I, when I, uh, first discovered Bruce, but the first imagery, you know, I just had cassettes. So, the, but, but when I, when I got to that age where I was in, you know, like the Pearl Jam and the Nirvana, my, my opinion of, of music, you know, MTV was coming out and it was big and there was all these imagery. So like, you know, Bruce was doing the human touch and the, the lucky town thing at that time. And, you know, for me, I, I, I didn't know enough to, to be able to differentiate between, Bruce Springsteen, and I mean, I knew he was older than like the guys in Nirvana, and I knew, you know, but the guys in Nirvana, that was a little much for me in the beginning. When it first came out, I was just like a little bit like, I, I'm like, I don't understand, why are you yelling like about, <laughs> why are you yelling libido? I don't know what a libido is, you know, I was 11. <laughs> so I, it didn't make sense to me. I was like, I get that you're mad, like I can clearly see that you're mad, and I can see that you're upset, but I'm 11 years old, I'm not that mad yet, you know, and <laughs> right. uh you know, but Pearl Jam seemed more exciting because I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, it kind of sounds like Jimi Hendrix when you're soloing. And it, look at this guy he's swinging from the rafters with a flannel shirt on. I got a flannel shirt. All of a sudden, I'm cool now in school because I got a flannel shirt that's ripped up. And you made fun of me last year. And 
So grunge was awesome. But then I saw like uh, Bruce Springsteen and he had like that human touch song and I kind of didn't mind it, you know? I saw, like, the train and the, and the video, and I was like, yeah, son, the melody's pretty good. I was like, you know, I don't know what that human touch is, but I'm, you know, <laughs> kind of interested in girls, you know? I'm, I can use a little human touch. I don't know what that is, but, you know, song sounds nice. So I didn't, I didn't really have a thing about, about Bruce. You know, he was a little scruffy then. Like, he had, like, a little bit of a beard, and, you know, he was kind of wearing a flannel shirt, too. Right. So... I didn't mind. It was okay. And I was like, this is, this is cool. Like, yeah, this is all right. So, so you were on board just like from the beginning. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't ever off board. I don't, I don't right. know if I was on board then, but I wasn't off board. So, I was just kind of like, yeah, this is cool. So you, and then like, as I got older and then I discovered, you know, the, the true, the true meaning. <laughs> <laughs> right. As my friend says, I became a believer. Right. She said, anybody that doesn't like Bruce Springsteen, she just says, uh, if I say, how did so-and-so like it when you, you know, went to see the show? And she goes, they're not of the faith. Right. And I was like, okay. It's like, very religious. See, I had a similar thing where, I mean, I remember, like, Born in the USA being really big, like, when I was six years old and seeing Dancing in oh, the Dark yeah, as yeah. a video. So that was, that was a similar lightning bolt to seeing, like, Michael Jackson videos. You know, like where yeah, I love. Yeah, no, that I remember. And so, like, oh. I, so I feel like I've been a Bruce fan from that time. But I remember in the '90s, there was a long time where it wasn't cool to be a Springsteen fan. Like, where my friends would make fun of me because I was excited about his MTV Plugged special that he did around. Oh yeah. The, like I was really excited to see that, and they would like make fun of it, like when the commercials would come on, because it was like, well, Bruce <laughs> is like from the '80s, you know, and this is because they all liked you know, the offspring or green day or whatever. And I was like, no, Bruce's old hat. And I was like, no, Bruce is awesome. And then it wasn't really until like 10 years later where you had bands like your band really talking about Bruce and you kind of helped revive him, I think among younger people. Um, well, there, yeah, there wasn't a cool thing, right? you know, for a while. Yeah. You know, it wasn't cool. But I think, you know, bands like, I would say that Against Me got to it before I did. Yeah. So I would, I would give them the credit for sort of doing that. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was on board, you know. <laughs> I forgot about the Born in the USA thing. Like, I remember being six running around singing that song. Yeah. And, yeah, and the Dancing in the Dark video. I remember watching that video and being like, I, I'm never going to, I can't moonwalk. But I can yeah. do the dance that Bruce is doing in this video. Like he's not, he's not <laughs> like I'm not a good dancer and he's not either. But I can I can do that. So that that's maybe a yeah. little more relatable to me. So let, let, let's talk about greetings uh, from Asbury Park for a bit because you know when I reached out to your publicist and I was like, you know, would Brian want to talk about a Springsteen record? Like this is the record that you that you that you talked about. I want yeah. to talk about this one, and then I kind of lumped in the Wild and the Innocent. But why was this the album you wanted to talk about? Like, is this your favorite Springsteen record? Uh, yeah, it is because it's the defining. To me, it's the defining one. You know, it's the the one that. And it's also the one that um, when I was probably about fourteen or fifteen, um, a friend of mine, we were we were in a band together, and and he was kind of really into jazz, and he was a really good player, and he, you know, I was struggling to keep up, and and he said to me, he's like, you might be on the wrong track here. And I was kind of like, what? Like, what? This is not, all right, well, let me, give me get some more practice in. And he handed me two records. And he handed me Greetings from Asbury Park and, and, uh, and a Tom Waits record, uh, Rain Dogs. And he goes, this might be more up your alley. 
And he goes, I feel like what you're trying to do is on these records. And I, I, I got the records home, and I, it was like everything exploded in my head. And I was just like, I found my calling, you know? <laughs> like those two words, that was it. So when I first heard it, I was kind of like, this isn't perfect by any means. I don't even know if there's a chorus in any of these songs. I can do this, you know? And they were recorded really cheaply, too. I mean, both albums were recorded at this studio. I think it's like, it's north of New York City. It's called 914 Sound Studios. And yeah. um, I heard that, like, like, when they made the first record, that they made it as cheaply as they could because they, they wanted to save as much of the advance from Columbia Records as they could. <laughs> so they were oh, like, yeah, sure, we're, sure. we're trying to save money on this record. And you can hear that on both records that... Um, that you know, they're, they're pretty like rough sounding records, especially compared to like what he started doing later in the decade with John Landau, and you know when he's when he's at the record plant and you know making these immaculate sounding '70s records. But those early records sound like low budget, but it's almost like low budget film or something. It's like someone trying to make yeah. Lawrence of Arabia on like ten thousand dollars, <laughs> like these <laughs> yeah. these grandiose songs, but like. Yeah, not a lot of money to do it, but like so much vision in them, and uh, so many words too on that first record. Just yeah, like so many lyrics, like just images piled on top of images. Um, but I think that's how they felt, you know. Like that's how he felt when he was that age. I mean, I, I can't say, but that's how I felt for sure. Right. Like everything was sort of schizophrenic when you're that age, you know, and you're you're coming into the world, and you're kind of like. I have all these things to say and I, I, I have to say all of them because, you know, I might not get another chance and they, they may not be cohesive, but it doesn't matter because they're all there and they all mean something and I'll find that later. Right. There's also something too about that record and I think even the second record where he seems like, I don't want to say human because I think there's always a human, he always seems human on all of his records, but you know, he's not fully formed yet. Like, you, you can hear what he's trying to do. You can hear that he's, like, trying to fuse Phil Spector with, like, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks with, like, you know, Bob Dylan and, like, all of these components, and it hasn't totally come together yet because he's just a young guy with obvious influences, like everyone is when they first start their career. But there's something sort of endearingly shaggy about these albums, I think. Uh, you know, I guess these are, like, his punk rock records, Maybe in a way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they make the they they make the case for uh, the things that are your influences versus the things that are inherently you. And you know, when he's doing these records, especially uh, on on uh, on, like you said, yeah, it's that big Van Morrison thing. You know, like I mean, uh, there's a couple of those songs on the, on those records where you're like, I'm not sure who's doing that. You know, and when you first hear it, if you're not if you're not a fan of of either artist, you could definitely mistake one for the other. But there's something that's inherently Bruce on there, and that that does come across in the in the lyrics and in the singing. Because at the same time as he's doing, you know, like he's he's got like the the <laughs> so you know blinded by the light, just kind of rambling and rambling. And then you know he'll turn the corner and kind of slam you with, with for you. That's like incredibly direct, you know about just being upset, you know, and, and that, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't know if you could capture that when you get refined or when you know what you're doing a little more clearly. 
Right. That that's kind of magic happening right there. It's kind of interesting too to me. Like, I don't know how much you know about the making of the record, but you know, the, there was this idea I think from his record label that he was going to be like the new Bob Dylan. So he was going to yeah. make. They wanted him to make more of a straightforward, you know, guy in a guitar record, whereas Bruce was pushing to make a band record. And I think originally it was basically half and half, where you had half band songs and half, um, you know, sort of solo acoustic. And then Clive Davis heard the record, and he's like, there's no singles here, so go back and write some singles. And then he wrote Blinded by the Light and Spirit in the Night, which are yeah. the two, you know, two, two of the most famous songs from the record. And maybe the only instance of a record label person saying write hits and then it actually improving the record, I feel like usually... Yeah. Like when they when they meddle like that, it destroys the record. But I think oh, even Bruce said, I think even Bruce said, like, oh, that was good advice. Like, I actually, it actually made the record better uh, when I did that. He does that in a way. Every time I hear that, when you know, because I, I know about that that part of it, and and I imagine like the soul crushing blow that it would, you know, it would hit me with, and like the the paralyzation that I would end up with. Uh, you know, creatively, if somebody says to me, go back and write a single, I would be like, <laughs> what? I mean, I'd roll up in the snow and bury me because that would be it. It'd be over. And uh, he goes back and writes, hey, yeah, you just whip this up on the beach in Long Branch. No big deal. Here's Blinded by the Light. Uh, you know, here's another one called Spear in the Night. Like, check it out. See if you like it. You know, <laughs> goes a little something like this. Right. And the world knows it. You know, it's unreal, but. That that shows like the focus that he he had. I don't think he was letting it go, no matter what. I think he got his chance, and by getting signed by Columbia, it was kind of the that was the big deal because you know he was a giant Bob Dylan fan. Like you know now I don't know if they'll talk about it so much, but he was like even if they were trying to say like this is the new Dylan and he didn't like that, but he was a giant Bob Dylan fan. Right, and 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 that came across. But at the same time, I think he also had this really clear perspective that I don't necessarily want to stop at Bob Dylan. You know, like I like the Ron Ox and I like Elvis Presley and I kind of want to be a big star. So I better write some choruses. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just like there, there was definitely, I don't think Bruce ever had any like confusion about wanting to be like the biggest star in the world. Right. No, exactly. And I think that's always been the tension that's kind of fueled his greatness that he has this sort of unshakable integrity on one hand, but on the other hand, he knows how to write pop songs and he has that yeah. sort of ambition to be a big star. And when you combine those two and you can make it work, it is a special combination. Yeah. It's one in a million. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that could do it. Yeah. So but it's uh, unique. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, do you have a favorite song on greetings? Like a song that stands Ooh. up in the pack? I mean, for me, like my, my favorites would change a lot. And so like it used to be, uh, does this post up at a second street? That used to be my favorite. Cause it, it really had like this sort of cautionary tale of dreaming of the city, you know, and it had like the, like that sort of sly sarcasm was in it. You know, when the, he talks about like the things you find when you're, you know, you're from New Jersey and you kind of have this naivety and then like you go to the city and then, you know, the, the bus driver says, drink this and you'll grow wings on your feet. You know, like those are the promises of the world and the things that you know are sort of spoken tongue in cheek with a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of poison mixed in. And then, actually, I went about eight years ago, I went to see him play by himself, and he played uh, For You on the piano. Mm. And, like, when I heard that, I'd always loved that song, but when I heard it on the piano, it sort of just spoke in a whole new way, and I kind of was like, 
Now that's that's the best song. That's my favorite song on the record, and and that that has only stuck with me now for for years. It's been that's longer than that, longer than eight years. I don't know, it was a while, but uh, that that song I think lyrically and emotionally and the melody and the whole bit. It just I think that that's a perfect example of of. You know, if somebody says, hey, what's early Springsteen song? Like, I would hand him that. Hey, guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes on May 8th, and it's available wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is a book about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it had been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long and appealed to new generations of fans? What is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to that music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? I'll attempt to answer all those questions in this book, along with offering in-depth analysis of my favorite Bob Seger songs, my least favorite Neil Young albums, and the scariest David Bowie cocaine binges of the 1970s. Also, for you Springsteen fans, there's a lot of stuff about Bruce in the book, too. So please check out my book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, when it comes out May 8th. Okay, let's get back to the episode. I've always loved the song "Lost in the Flood," um, mm. just because I think yeah. that's—I I feel like that's kind of a lost song, maybe a little bit for for Springsteen. Like I don't know if he ever plays that, and you don't hear people talking about it a lot. But it's such a dark song, and it kind of makes me—it reminds me that oh yeah, Springsteen kind of came out of the end of Vietnam, you know, that era yeah. in America, because you kind of think of him. I don't normally associate him with that era necessarily. But uh, there's a darkness in that song that seems like very like Vietnam, like in the moment. It's not him writing about it ten years later about Vietnam veterans, like in Born in the USA. It's like this is like a guy he knows that just got out of there in the early '70s, you know, or, or you know, it just has that vibe to it to me. Just that sort of Watergatey Vietnam early '70s darkness um, that is in contrast to maybe some of the optimism that is in a lot of his other songs on this record. Yeah. That's- that song is brutal. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, that, that's one of those things that, um, I don't know, you, you definitely realize there's another layer to him when you hear that song. And, you know, uh, one of the, one of the things that he did was he took it too and made that song into a, like a sort of a, an epic in, in and of itself live. Um, I don't know if you, you've heard the live version of that. Song. Oh yeah. From that 75, the Hammersmith yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably one of the best performances I've ever seen of any artist when he performs that song. And, you know, just even like when Max has got that, like, everything stops, you hear five quick shots, and he just does the snow roll for five times, you know? And it's like the, the, the life comes into it, and it really hits you with, like, you know, like the, the poetry, too. It shows another level of his poetry. Like, he, you know that that guy was studying, you know? And because... The, even the fact that he just says like his body hit the street with such a beautiful thud, you know, like <laughs> no one would say that, like no one, no one would come up with those words, you know, except for him. And it, it, that, that whole thing, that's, I think that's where the, the real like meat of his work comes in. Cause you know, later on in some of the more pop oriented records, there, there's meat in there for sure, but there, there's nothing like that. You can't, you can, I've been chewing on that my whole career, you know, like those, 
those songs there, and you know, especially Lost in the Flood. I, I've been you know working at that for for you know however long I've been doing this, and it, it, it never lets up, and you never sort of get to the core of it and are able to translate it as well as I think he did. Yeah. Let's let's transition here to, to the wild and the innocent because you know you're obviously a huge fan of Greetings and that's your favorite Springsteen record. I have to say that for me, I love Greetings. I think there's a lot of great songs on it, but for me, the first great Springsteen record is The Wild and the Innocent, and that was confirmed for me in the last few days when I've been revisiting that record because as much as I love the songs on Greetings, the way that they come across on the wild and the innocent. Even though that record doesn't have great production, he had already, I think, developed enough. And I, I, and by the way, I think there's only about a six month gap between when these albums were recorded. I think Greetings was made like in the fall of '72, and then uh, Wild and the Innocent was like the summer of '73, and it came out at the end of '73. So like maybe a six eight month gap. So he was really yeah. kind of working at the same time. It's like he was 23 when he was working on Greetings and he turned 24 around the time that Wild and the Innocent came out. So it really is kind of the same period for these albums. But just the amount of growth that happened, I think, by the time of, of the Wild and the Innocent, especially the second side, that incident at 57th Street, you know, that run to Rosalita to New York Serenade. Um, I was listening to that this morning, you know, driving to the studio here to record this podcast. And there's like multiple like shiver inducing moments like on that side. And I'm like, as much as I love greetings, I don't necessarily get the shivers from that, but like just, I don't know. You could, you could see what, where he was going on the wild and the innocent, how that would become born to run and it would become more refined. And I think he improved on it, but I don't know Wild and the innocent to me. Um, it's such a leap forward. I think from the first record for me, like, yeah. like, like what do you think? Well, I think that that's where he was sort of abandoning what the label wanted on uh, Greetings. And he was definitely making a further stand that he was going to do a band record. And I think it was also kind of finding his, his footing more in in the, the soul music that he was always interested in and sort of t- trying to tie that together with, I think, what he would eventually do and what he did on greetings. And I think, you know, there's, cause there's still elements of, you know, like wild Billy's circus story where like, he's still got that folk kind of traveling circus, which, you know, would come through town in, in New Jersey during the summer. So that, you know, that kind of brought the town to life and, and he invented this wild story of, of a traveling circus that would somehow, you know, eventually leave. Um, but you know, when he, did that record and put it together it was there was a lot of growth in a short period of time that i think probably was going on before greetings right i think that i don't think you could make a jump like that in six months right right yeah i mean i think that the first record was sort of consciously presented as a singer songwriter record because i think that's what the label wanted even more than springsteen did and Springsteen rubbed against that expectation as much as he could, you know, by bringing the band in and not just doing a straightforward folk record. But you're right. I mean, I think, you know, in the clubs, like to me, like in a way, like the Wild and the Innocent, it's like, I feel like this is the closest I'm, I'm ever going to get to hearing Springsteen play, you know, Asbury Park clubs, like the Stone Pony or something in 1971. 
you know, like when he was playing yeah. with Steel Mill and <laughs> that kind of stuff, like these really kind of big, like where the songs are really long and there's like guitar solos and there's like instrumental breaks and I mean, really stuff that he wouldn't do on record after that, like, like a song like Kitty's Back where you have like a really, you know, kind of flashy guitar solo in there and you have like organ breaks and, and all this stuff and um, where there's sort of like a looseness to it. I mean, I've heard people almost liken it to like a Steely Dan or kind of like a jam bandy type thing that he was doing on this record because it does feel very loose and the musicians seem to be sort of empowered to stretch out a little bit more. Whereas on the later records, you could tell that Bruce really kind of nailed it down and like tried to keep things, you know, there wasn't a wasted note on like the later records. And this was much right. more kind of loose and, you know, let it all hang out type record. Yeah, definitely. I think that's exactly what was going on. You know, there was, they were sort of un, unchained from the first record and let, let loose to play. And, and, you know, they were a jammy kind of band when they, when they were playing the bars around here, you know, they, they like the Bruce Springsteen band, which was before greetings. Um, yeah. Before it became the E street band, it was, it was, it was a jammy kind of band and they, they were loose and they had like their, you know, <laughs> like ongoing seven minute, you know, epics, eight minute, 16 minute epics. And I mean, even Kitty's back starts with a solo, like <laughs> very pink Floyd, you know, it's like, well, we're not even going to get into the song for about a minute here, you know, and, and most people now they would, <laughs> it would be gone, you know? Um, but yeah, the, they, the way that he did it, on that record, I don't think has been repeated. Um, and I definitely think that when he came to Rosalita, that was sort of the, the bridge. You could hear what he was going to do right. in that song. You know, that was sort of the motto of that song. kind of like people say like the motto of New Jersey is born to run, but I, you know, I don't know, man. I, I think, I think Rosalita might be the, you know, that might be the crown jewel for, for getting out. What is it about that song? You think? I mean, is it just because it's such a great live staple? Like, I feel like you can't have an encore without that song. If you're at a Springsteen oh. show, yeah. For me, it was not the the epicness of it. It was the the like the, the there was humor in the struggle. You know, there was there was a lot of there's a lot of seriousness in that in that song, and 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 there is a struggle. You know, like there's there's he's like stuck, you know, and you could feel it, but you know, he's sort of like undyingly saying, I'm getting out of it. And that, that's, there will be nothing that's going to stop me. Right. And he, I mean, you can't, you can't argue with that song, you know, and that, when that comes on and you're, you're, you're kind of taken along for the journey, it just sort of sets you free. I mean, and it gives you hope that, you know, if this guy can do it, well, why can't I? Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, again, going back to that second side of the record, you know, because Rosalita's in the middle there, and the song before that is maybe my favorite song on the record, Incident on 57th Street, which is another song I feel like doesn't really get its due. But I feel like, you know, we have to give a shout-out to David Sanchez, who was playing piano uh, with Springsteen at that time, before the professor, Roy Patan, came into the band. But... Uh, David was more of like a jazzy type player and his playing on that song and on New York Serenade, New York City Serenade, just total, just beautiful, really epic. And like, you know, I love Roy Batan. He's one of my favorite piano players, but uh, Bruce 
had good taste in piano players even before <laughs> the professor because that guy's playing is is incredible on that song um but you know i I kind of want to go back to what we were talking about with New Jersey there and sort of Springsteen's New Jersey because I feel like this is something that connects to your own songwriting and that I feel like, you know, one thing that, that Springsteen was really good at doing on these first two records is creating a world that is very indelible and, and, and almost cinematic. Like you can see these songs unfold and it's because of the detail that's packed into the characters as well as sort of evoking a very specific place, you know, this this you know, basically New Jersey, you know, it, it making you feel like uh, you've been there even even if you have never been to New Jersey ever. And I feel like that's also true of your own songs. I feel like that's probably a lesson you've picked up maybe from here and, and elsewhere. But I was wondering if you could talk about that and just the power of that as a songwriter being able to, uh, you know, why that's valuable, I guess, in songs, like being able to evoke a sense of place. Because it really comes across on these records and I, I feel like that comes across in your own songs. Well, I think that there's a, a commonality between, you know, we're fortunate, uh, Bruce and anyone else that comes from um, this kind of area in, in New Jersey, because it's so, I, I have been around to most other places, you know, and, and there's a there's a common thread that kind of runs through everything that um, that people want to you know, be taken away in a in a story for a little while. Like people, people have always done that from you know way back when, and and they would they would kind of tell stories and the the details kind of they they kind of occupy your mind with with forming images, that, and and your mind can't be occupied with your your immediate surroundings because they're being taken away on this trip, uh, you know. And I think that the detail of those things and when you tell stories like that and you're trying to give people a glimpse into what what your your surroundings are like, you you want to make them yours, but at the same time, you want them to feel universal. And the the benefit of kind of New Jersey is it, I find it to be the utmost universal um, because there's, you know, places in... Germany and Japan that feel like this and they just feel like people kind of getting, getting on with the living, you know, and that's really what the, the whole, the whole world is doing. Right. Well, and that thing you said earlier too, I think is really, was really insightful talking about how you can see the lights of the city from <laughs> where you live uh, there in Jersey and how there's always this sense that, you know, we're trying to get someplace else. You know, we love where we're from. You know, it's familiar and it's a part of us, but, you know, we also want to, you know, get to that place where we can walk in the sun, you know, to quote a song. Um, yeah. It, it, it does seem like Jersey is maybe a microcosm of that. It's a very it's a very American impulse, I think. I mean, but obviously it extends beyond America too. But um, that thing you were talking about, sort of like the – ordinariness of uh of new jersey is is universal maybe in a way yeah i mean it it, <laughs> it is very ordinary and um you know it, it it is universal because i think people that that's what most people you know definitely most americans want because you know you're you're you gotta you gotta you sort of alluded to a promise of a american dream or whatever it is that you know they're alluding to when we're when we're young and you know that, that kind of 
creates a, a frustration because it's not, it doesn't happen to everyone, you know? And I think th- there's this possibility of like a, a uniform chance to, uh, you know, break out and see your, your dreams unfold before your eyes all on the, you know, the golden shores of America, which is simply not true. And that, 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 that is definitely a, a, uh, well, not, I don't know if it's a universal feeling, but it, it's definitely a, you know, a feeling in this country. And I think that, you know, coming from somewhere normal, if you come from somewhere that's just crazy, you know, like if you come from New York City, like a lot of the records that were coming out around the same time, but I think the television record came out, like, you know, like punk rock was just starting to happen and yeah. those kind of records were coming out in New York and, you know, I mean, I, I like television and I, I like Blondie and I like the Ramones, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting the same vibe out of that. You know, I don't, I don't really want to be sedated. You know, I kind of want to get out of here. <laughs> well, and so, I think, I think the difference too is that like, if you're, if you're a band from New York and you're writing about where you're from, it's going to be a record about New York. You know, it, you can't, yeah. you can't avoid the New Yorkness of whatever it is you're talking about. Whereas Springsteen, you know, could do that thing where he could be hyper specific about Jersey, and yet you could be for you know I'm from Wisconsin, and I could relate to people racing in the street, or I could relate to yeah. you know the river, or any of those songs. Where it, it's sort of that weird contradiction, where like the more specific you get about your life, sometimes the more relatable it is for other people. And I don't know why that's true, but it is, and I think it's especially true for Springsteen songs. Um, but yeah, like I think again, like if you're from New York, it's gonna be, like the Ramones were always going to be a New York band, but Springsteen could be from Jersey, but also have sort of a more kind of broad American quality, I think, to his music maybe because uh, because of Definitely. where he was from. You know, um, I think the thing that kind of unites these first two records, and we've hit upon a lot of these things, but you know, the songwriting style, you know, very wordy songs, kind of looser songs. On the second record, longer songs, kind of jammier songs. All those things would change pretty abruptly with Born to Run and then, of course, going into Darkness on the Edge of Town, where his songs became much more concise and focused. Um, and I know there's people that kind of miss those, the kind of looseness of the early records. Like, how do you feel about that? Like, how, I mean, obviously, he made great records after this, really great records. But, like, do you miss, do you kind of wish he had maybe pursued? the kind of more sort of wordy, longer, kind of more adventurous style of songwriting that he had in those first two records? Well, every time he comes out with a, uh, like an acoustic record, you know, like which he's done a couple times since then, you know, done Nebraska and Devils and Dust and uh, Ghost of Tom Joad, I always sort of expect it to be that. And I always go, all right, this is going to be the one where, you know, he tells me some wild, weaves together some wild tale of, you know, Madame Marie and, the, <laughs> you know, the, the fat lady, big mama, you know, that, that, that stuff really like, I don't know, it, it gave me a, a sense of wonder. It was like a storybook and kind of Shel Silverstein for the, for the, you know, the, the, the folk artist listening public, you know, and the, the, that's not happened, but it might be, just because he might not be able to do it anymore. He might be, he might be in a different place that he can't, you know, he can't conjure those things. It's tough to, you know, everybody wants their first experience over and over again, be it on record or be it in, in life. They, they always want that initial, you know, relationship to last like the first date. And it, it you know, it kind of, 
I don't know if that that's going to happen. I don't I don't know if that makes it less special. Uh, you know, if it does it again. Um, but yeah, I do I do wonder. You know, what would happen if he tackled something like that? Now, you know, what, what would happen if he tackled the song with a bunch of words and kind of? I definitely love the band style. That was my favorite uh, Easter incarnation. Was when they were. There's like a video, uh, like a DVD that comes with the Born to Run box set, and it's not it's not the Hammersmith show. It's actually another DVD. Yeah, that kind of came, and you know what I'm talking about where they play like Thundercrack. And, yeah, it's like really and, grainy yeah. black and white. Yeah, it's really really you know, poorly filmed, but you can see how like, you know, you can see how goofy they were, but also how <laughs> serious they were too. They were deadly serious. And and the funny thing was they could change on a dime. So like, you, you know, they, they, they played these songs and I, I think, you know, they, they played uh, spirit in the night and they played wild Billy circus story. Uh, they played Thundercrack and maybe one other song, but, uh, you know, that that kind of jammy thing where the songs would go down to nothing. They would go down to the quietest moment and then explode in the, you know, in this, this like, onslaught of notes and, and, you know, tape echo sounds. Like, they, you don't get that anymore. And the, the part, one thing that I definitely took, um, you know, I mean, I don't, don't have the publishers call, call me, but, uh, you know, it was the quiet thing. You know, I really got that. I took that away from Bruce early on in the in, uh, with the with the band, and and even now in my live shows, that's one thing that I I really borrow, and you know, hopefully he doesn't mind. But um, well, he was. That thing, he, I mean, he was taken from what, Sam and Dave, though. You know, like he, you know, in, in the Soul People. Yeah. So I, you know, I he didn't invent that. <laughs> that, that that just gets handed. That's like showmanship and getting handed down from the generations. I think. I appreciate you bailing me out of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, but yeah, like, I mean, I, I guess so. Yeah, it is. Yes, it's for, you know, James Brown and all that stuff. And, you know, the, 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 you know, being carried out by the stretcher, which he did in the 80s, you know, that was James Brown's move. But, right. you know, there's this, like, notorious interview, I don't know if you've ever heard it, where somebody asks Van Morrison in the 70s, what does he think about Bruce Springsteen? And he gets real curmudgeon about it. He's <laughs> like... He goes, he stole my moves. He goes, my 70s moves. <laughs> I was like, he stole my His only sentences. he stole my moves, my 70s moves. I was like, wait, you have, does Van Morrison have films of himself with decades? And then, here's my 80s moves. Better look out. I'm going to pull out some of my 2010 moves on you. Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, different levels of karate? Is this like, you know, it's absurd. But, but it's so funny that he was so burned up. Like, he was really burned up that Bruce stole his booth. But, you know, Bruce was just doing his thing, and he was kind of being a, a cornball, and he wasn't afraid. The thing, of the, the, the best thing that Bruce Springsteen ever taught me was don't be afraid to be laughed at right. for what you love. Don't be afraid, because, you know, the joke is on you, and the joke is also on them, and the joke is on all of us. And that's the funny thing about Bruce Springsteen is he knew that the joke was on us all. And so he was kind of making fun of himself and, and, but also at the same time, he knew when, when it was time to be, you know, deliver that one line that was deadly serious. Right. And that, that, that is not, no one does that anymore. And, and I feel like why well, I have to do that because no one does it. I got, I don't, I'm not gonna let that die. Yeah. You know, like I look at, 
I look at him do that, and I go, there's no way I'm letting that die. Because you don't, I mean, you don't see, like, there's great bands around. You know, everybody's like, oh, there's no new music that's good. There's plenty of new music that's good. There's great music. But, you know, you don't see, like, you're not going to see, like, an epic, you know, kind of, like, craziness happen in, you know, with, like, a soul revival, and then all of a sudden stop and just be, like, the quietest, prettiest part ever, you know? Right. Um, And so I'm, you know... I'm, I'm taking that back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it on home. You gotta do it, man. Someone's gotta. I gotta. Do it. That's what I'm saying. That's... I'm somebody. You know, <laughs> someone's gotta do it. My mom had a mug with a uh, an ostrich, and it, 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 it on one side of the mug it said uh, it's a dirty job, but somebody's gotta do it, and it had its head in the sand. And on the other side of the mug, it looked up and it was looking at you, and it said, "I'm somebody." And I always took that mug like very literal. Yep. Very serious. <laughs> I was a serious young man. Brian, I feel like we could talk about this for three more hours, but uh, we should probably, for the, for the sake of the listeners, we should probably wrap it up now. But, no problem. Uh, it, it's such a pleasure talking to you, to you about this, man. I really uh, appreciate you giving me some time. Of course, man. This is fun, man. I never get to talk about this stuff, you know, so it's cool. <laughs> All right, man. We'll take care. I use it All right, that was me and Brian Fallon getting into it. And as you can see at the end, you know, I mean, you know Brian's been compared to Bruce a lot. And it was fun talking to him because he doesn't shy away from that. And at the end of that conversation, you can hear him really wanting to pick up the torch from this guy, you know, seeing what this guy did, being inspired by it, and wanting to bring that into his own music. And I really love his fearlessness in that regard, because usually if, if you're influenced by someone, you know, the temptation is to, you know, deny that connection. And, and Brian hasn't done that. So kudos to him and thank you to him for uh, being so great on this show. Guys, thank you for listening. This was part one of our 20th Century Boss conversation. I want to give a shout out to Derek Madden, our producer, and I want to thank you all for listening and uh, spreading the word about the podcast. Tell your friends about us. Leave reviews on iTunes. Talk, us, talk about us on social media. Spread the word. Tell them that we're doing this great Bruce Springsteen series. Uh, all these things help grow the podcast. So anything you guys could do to help is very much appreciated. Guys, we will talk to you soon about more Bruce. We're going to get into Born to Run in our next episode with our very special guest, Jeff Rosenstock. And that is very exciting. So we will talk to you then. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.